0: Uh, You can turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. I'm going to, I'm pretty, we're going to do Romans chapter 1 verses 1 to 17, but I'm pretty much just going to talk about verses 16 to 17. Um, And this is why. Um, We, no matter who we are, I think everyone, I think it's safe to say that everyone wants an assurance that they're, an assurance of their goodness, some sort of self-justification so they can think of themselves and say, I'm a good person. I'm I'm not as bad as them. But some sort of yardstick by which we we can measure ourselves to affirm our goodness, our rightness, our sense of, of decency, not you know for evil mercenary reasons, but just for a personal sense of well-being. We like to we like to we, we like to be good people, decent people, um, and we we all search for a yardstick of some sort we can, against which we can measure ourselves, so we can. Um, see ourselves as good people. And for, for honest reasons, not for evil reasons, um, the Christian story says, yeah, there's a reason why we all want, we, we all want to be good. We all want to be decent. Um, we have this yearning inside to, to be seen as decent and good and, and kind and good, good people. But the Christian story says, the reason why we, we, we seek that, is because God hardwired us to, to want to be like him, whether we realize it or not. We have this yearning to, to be like him, to meet a standard. And because we don't love God, we unwittingly just search out other yardsticks. But what the Christian story says is that any yardstick other than God's yardstick for goodness, righteousness, is a manufactured righteousness. It's like a generic knockoff. It's like when you order an, elect, an electronic thing and it comes in an Amazon package with Chinese writing all over it and it doesn't actually work, you know, like maybe you shouldn't have bought the cheapest thing on Amazon. Go figure. But it's like that's what that's what we do when we go search for something to justify ourselves, something to be so we can be seen as good, righteous, moral, uh, decent folk. Anything other than God's standard, that that's what we're doing. So that brings up the question, what is God's standard? And that's why we come to our passage in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 17. Uh, You can see it on the screen. I won't read it. But there's a passage that's highlighted that says the righteousness of God is revealed. and, And it goes on. So what does that mean? The righteousness of God. What's it mean? If you've been a Christian, you know righteousness is a good word. It's a churchy word. It's a good thing. It's good. You know, God's righteousness is good. But what's it mean? Because God is righteous, a lot more righteous than we are. He defines righteousness. So God's righteousness is a, you know, about as high as a standard can get. That's kind of a, a steep hill to climb. It's kind of a scary thing. God's righteousness, our righteousness. There's kind of a big gap between the two. So if God's righteousness is revealed, is that a good thing? Is that a scary thing? Is it a bad thing? Is God sort of, uh, is God sort of dangling out a prize? for whoever's better or faster or stronger or tries the hardest? Is he holding out something as, you need to come try and come get this, this righteousness, I'm so righteous you're not, you need to try and come get this so you can be like me too? Or is God offering his righteousness as a gift in exchange for love, trust, and a loyalty pledge to Jesus? That's the question. And if you've been raised as a Christian, or if you become a Christian in the the, the evangelical world, it's, so you're probably thinking, "Well, gee, I wonder what the answer is." You know, but there are untold millions of people, even today, um, and throughout the history of the church, that have answered that question the wrong way. And we're gonna talk about that today what should you leave here with today Um, I want whoever you are I want us each to to leave here uh, knowing remembering and trusting that righteousness is not something God is hanging dangling out for you to come get uh, or try and achieve it's a gift that he's offering to anyone who wants it by faith faith in Jesus you get his righteousness it's not something you have to achieve it's not something you can achieve it's not something he's holding out as a as a prize at the end of the rainbow it's a gift that he's offering to give you whoever you are wherever you come from whoever your parents are whatever you've done it's a gift he's offering to us to you in exchange for faith and trust in Jesus and what he's done that's what i want us to leave here knowing or to be reminded of in a very powerful way so that we understand what the gospel is that's the center of the letter that's why it's at the beginning and that's what we're going to talk about talk about today so let's pray and then we'll we'll dive into what it says dear lord we come to you today in jesus name help us to love you help us to have a help us to to understand what your righteousness is and how we can have it, to really understand that it's a gift and not a prize to be won by our own effort and sweat and, and energy. In Jesus' name we pray, pray amen. He starts, Paul starts uh, in verses one through six, which I'm gonna breeze through real quick. If we were in a Sunday school or something, I'd go through each verse and we'd talk all about it, but we're not, so I'm gonna breeze through it very quick. It's the it's the verses one through six. Paul's saying hello, basically. He says a lot of good things about how he's a servant of the gospel. The gospel was promised a long time ago, and now it's here. Um, he talks about um, something very important that I will mention. He says in verse five, talks about Jesus, and he says through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience and faith, the obedience of faith, for the sake of His name. This is something that I don't know if we've, we really get. Um, Paul says that if you're a Christian, you've received apostleship. Not in a sense of, you know, you're the 13th apostle, but in a sense of you're, you're an apostle, you're a messenger. We're messengers. We have a message, we're so supposed to give the message. Um, that's what those, those posters on the wall say, uh, to live the good news. That's why we pray for, we're picking someone to pray for throughout the month. We, you have, if you're a Christian, you have an apostleship to give a message to give in your life and god's put you where you are in your job in your retirement community in your neighborhood of the people god has put you in touch with people who all never know the person sitting next to you will never know but you know he's giving you people to influence none of us have to be charles spurgeon or some great missionary who goes to the depths of 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 africa and the jungle some people can do that but for most christians he wants us to leave faithful anonymous quote-unquote boring lives that aren't boring at all but he wants us to lead ordinary lives of faith and love and to influence the people around us for the gospel of jesus we all have apostleship we all have a message to give so he says hello Says this is what this is the gospel I've been given. This is the task we've all been given, and he says hi to everyone in Rome in verses uh, verse seven, and then he talks about how anxious he is to visit them. No one knows why Romans was written. You know that? No, he doesn't say why it was written. What made him write the letter? We know why he wrote the letter to the Galatians because they're all messed up about salvation. We know why he wrote the letter to the Corinthians because there's all sorts of crazy stuff going on. No one knows why he wrote Romans. Is there something going on? No one knows. The best guess is that we know he wants to go to Spain. He's going to stop in Rome on the way and wants prayer. He wants support because it's sort of halfway there uh, across the Mediterranean. Uh, and there's, there's something going on in the church about Jews and Gentiles and how they're, supposed to, how they're supposed to work and how they're supposed to live together. Those are the best guesses about why Paul wrote the letter. We really don't know. But he talks here about how much he's been, he's been wanting to see them for years. For years he's been wanting to get to Rome. No one knows how the church in Rome started. Nobody. It just is there. Some boring anonymous person like me, like you, went there. And a group of anonymous boring Christians who no one will ever know but whom God knows started that community. The community grew and it's there and Paul wants to get there. We'll never know who these people were, men, women, no one knows, but God knows. And that's what our lives are like. Anonymous, faithful lives of love for Christ and being an apostle to the people uh, with whom he's put us in contact. He says in verse 10, you know, at last, I hope I can get there. Verse 11, I've been been wanting to see you for so long. I want to strengthen you guys. I want to be strengthened. I want to be encouraged by you. Um, He says, I've I've been meaning to get there forever. And he says in verse 14, I'm under obligation both to the Greeks and to the, your translation might say non-Greeks. It might say barbarians. It might say whatever. But I'm under obligation to to non-Jewish people. I want to give them the gospel. It doesn't matter whether they're civilized, cultured people or whether they're people way out on the frontier somewhere. Like in Spain, way at the far edges of the Roman frontier, he wants to give the gospel to people. doesn't care who they are. Rich, poor, doesn't care. Both to the wise and the foolish, he says at the end of verse 14. So I'm anxious to get to Rome. I'm looking forward to it. And I want to get there, he says. I want to get there. Verse 16 and 17. So here we are. He says, why is he so anxious to get there? For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. What is the only reason why Paul would decide to say, I'm not ashamed? He'd make a big deal. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why would he say that? Because there's people running around that are making fun of the gospel that make him feel like he should be ashamed. When Richard Nixon said I am not a crook. Why did he say it? It's because a whole bunch of people were saying you are a crook. So he felt compelled to stand there and say, I'm not a crook. I've earned everything I've got. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because there's people saying your message is stupid. Your message is simple. Your message is idiotic. Trust in Jesus doesn't make any sense. It's so simple, it's like cheap. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. So this is, remember the question is, uh, the question is, is righteousness something that's being dangled out saying, you try really hard, you can have this. You work hard like me, you can have this. You work hard at your career, you can get the promotion. You can get the, uh, the salary raise. You can get whatever. And that's good advice in the you know, in the, on this plane. Work hard at your job, get better, get credentials, get promoted, whatever. That's good advice here. But when it comes to your relationship with God, God isn't dangling something saying, work hard and this too can be yours. It's, I have a gift I I want to give you. So this question is, what is salvation? Is it something we work for and get as a prize or is it a gift God is offering? That's the question to keep in your mind as we see what Paul says. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God, the power of God for salvation. To everyone who believes and when it says power of God for salvation what it's really getting across is the the gospel is power from God for the purpose of salvation for the purpose of salvation we want to we want to work hard we want to try and earn we want to try and um, get something by our effort and that works really well at your job Um, and and in other spheres of life. That's good advice. It's the worst advice when it comes to your relationship with God. So I want you to to remember this. Why is Paul not ashamed of the gospel? Because it's the power of God for salvation. It's not the power of me for salvation. It's not the power of you for salvation. It's not the power of my own effort and ingenuity for salvation. It's power from God for salvation you can't save yourself god is willing to is willing to save you you don't need to save yourself there is no prize to be won no 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 race to be won with a prize handed out at the end for salvation it, it's a gift that he's giving power of power from god for salvation to everyone who believes to anyone who has faith it doesn't matter whether you're jewish because there's jewish people running around saying that uh, you have to be Jewish to be a Christian. You have to start living like a No, none of of that's true. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter whether you're from Tanino. It doesn't matter whether you're from Olympia. It doesn't matter whether you're from Moscow. It doesn't matter whether you're from Pyongyang in North Korea. If you, whoever you are, whatever you've done, if you have faith and trust in Jesus and what he's done, then the power of God for salvation will rescue you from yourself. nothing to do with your effort and your striving and your sweat and your training you need to work hard if you want to lose weight and get in shape you don't have to work hard to get salvation it's power from God that's on offer through Jesus and so Paul explains again what that means in verse 17 he says for in it in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed through faith, for faith, as it is written, and he quotes from the book of Habakkuk, he who through faith is righteous shall live. So this is where I'm going to spend the next few minutes, and then the sermon will essentially be done. God's righteousness is a scary thing. Righteousness is a standard. It's like a yardstick, a measurement. And like I said, because God is... Pretty powerful his righteousness and standard is really really high and we're not going to be able to you know the gap can't be you you can't make the jump you you can't make the jump and so God's righteousness is revealed that could be interpreted as a scary sort of thing if God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel And you're not looking at the gospel through the right glasses you don't understand the gospel instead of seeing yes praise God that it's revealed in the gospel because Jesus did it all for me you read it as God's righteousness is revealed and you think oh that sucks because I can't do that instead of being a comforting message it's a message of condemnation because it's a message that says you see God's righteousness and you suck and then you're like that's that sucks what am I gonna do you see this gap and you feel despair that is what Martin Luther thought that's what millions of Christians in Europe were thinking around the time of Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation and I'll give you a quick sketch don't fall asleep I'll give you a quick sketch because this is important this verse is what is what made the scales fall for Martin Luther's eyes To understand what the gospel was and what it wasn't this is a one probably one of the most important verses verses 16 and 17 in the entire Bible if we can get this then you'll understand the gospel and you'll understand everything else about it Martin Luther grew up learning the catechism the Lord's Prayer all the stuff right He's Roman Catholic Uh, he's in what is now Germany wasn't Germany then all this stuff You know, he could recite the creeds, the catechism, the the Lord's Prayer, all of it, got it all. But because of the culture of that time and the way the Roman Catholic Church was corrupted, the gospel somehow didn't manage to make it into any of that. And so he entered, uh, he became a monk when he was a young man, after surviving a terrifying lightning strike that scared him almost to death. He decided to devote his life to God because he felt he was so close to death. He needs to make a change in his life. So he entered a monastic order, and that didn't help him with his spiritual, you know, he kept having this, I'm not God's righteousness is revealed, and then there's me, and what am I going to do? How do I bridge the gap? Became a monk, and no matter what he did, he never felt peace in his heart. He kept searching his heart and mind and confessing sins, confessing sins, confessing sins over and over and over, ransacking his life. He'd be, he'd be confessing sins for six hours at a time. There's, there's, there's records of his uh, you know, the, the priest he's confessing to saying, can you just stop? I mean, like enough. You know, I think you have like some sort of problem, like mental problem. I mean, uh, you aren't even confessing real sins. I mean, you're just, he's ransacking everything, part of his memory for things he's done wrong and thought wrong, confessing it all. And through it all, he's not, he's not feeling peace because he doesn't know what peace is. He's, uh, he uh, gets degrees, gets a master's degree, gets a doctorate degree, becomes a Bible teacher. At, um, at a university in a tiny little town uh, called Wittenberg and his his um, his problem doesn't get better he begins to instead of being depressed about God because he's up here and I'm down here he begins to despise God uh, because he just sees him as a tyrant saying you if you try really hard you can get this righteousness but he keeps trying and he keeps never finding peace because he keeps confessing sins he does other bad things, or he ransacks his mind for bad thoughts. and he, No matter what he does, he never feels clean. He never feels he's confessed everything. So it's just like this treadmill that, that never ends, this cycle of doom that just keeps spiraling and never stopping. And it's, it's never, never getting fixed. And so when he reads about the righteousness of God is revealed, he sees it as, <sighs> you failed, you failed. Righteousness of God, look at you, you failed. And that's how he's reading it. That's how he's reading the Romans. That's how he's reading the scripture. And so, and so in, in complete despair, uh, the head of his monastic order convinces him to start doing a series of, of, of lectures and teaching through books of the Bible, hoping that as he's teaching the Bible, he'll begin helping himself which lets you know that not everyone back then was an evil Roman Catholic who didn't know the gospel. His head of his order gave him good advice. So he started preaching through the Psalms. And he got to Psalm 22, teaching through the Psalms to his students. He got to Psalm 22, which Jesus quoted when he's on the cross. Familiar passage. David, as a person, is saying, God, you've le- he's the king of Israel. God, why have you forsaken me? You've abandoned me. You've left me alone. On one level, it's David complaining to God about how he feels abandoned. On, an, on a deeper level, this is what Jesus says on the cross because in the moment when he dies on the cross, he's abandoned by God. He's forsaken by God because all of our sins are put, as it were, on him, and he dies for all of our sins. He suffers for all of our sins. And as Luther is teaching this to his students, it, the Holy Spirit begins to work in his life to understand what it's actually saying. Look beyond the glasses that he'd been given to actually look at it himself and he re- he's thinking Christ didn't deserve to be forsaken and abandoned and tortured and assassinated because he didn't do anything wrong. So it must have been, he must have been, he must have suffered all of that as a, as a stand-in, as a representative. But for who? Must have been for me, for you, for us. Because he didn't do anything wrong. Who did he suffer for? He suffered for me. He suffered for you. He suffered for us. And so as he begins to start connecting dots in his mind that are so obvious to us only because we're downstream of him, he starts connecting dots in his mind. He's thinking, well, it's nice that God had so much love that he gave his son, but what about justice? What about the righteousness of God? I am here. He's here. How do we, how do we bridge the gap? What about the severity, the justice, the moral rightness that God has that I can't have? The gospel reveals it. It shows me what an awful person I am. So how does that get fixed? Love is nice, but how does it actually fix anything? And then when that happened, when that happened, the second part of this verse started coming into focus when you have binoculars and you're trying to adjust the focus so you can actually see things instead of a blur the blur is starting to come into focus now as he's reading as he's teaching the psalms and he looks this verse haunted him this righteousness of god thing and so he's reading it again and it's starting to come into focus and he starts to see how how is god's righteousness revealed in the gospel through faith that's how it's revealed. He's thinking righteousness is a thing I have to get because his whole tradition has taught him that's what it is. When you're taught something from being a kid and, or from just going to a certain place with a certain tradition, you, you, you read things a certain way, and unless you're able to step outside a little bit and see that there's other ways to look at things, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. In this case, it's bad because his tradition taught him I just have to read righteousness of God as a thing I need to get when instead it's something else. So he's been saying, I can't meet this standard, and it sucks that God's righteousness is here, so he's angry, he fears God, he's depressed for years. So he he sees Jesus is forsaken for his sake, which is nice, you still have to solve justice, God's righteousness is still revealed, it's still on the table as a yardstick I can't meet, and then Luther starts to realize, that because God's righteousness is is revealed by faith, that must mean that our faith is is what makes us righteous. Our faith, our trust in Jesus makes us righteous. And so now he realized he'd been reading the whole thing backwards. God isn't holding righteousness out as a gift that we have to try really hard to come get. As a standard that we have to come get, he's holding righteousness out as a gift that comes by faith. It's righteousness from God. He's offering a gift. Instead of saying, here it is, try and get up the hill, he's saying, here, would you like it? Would you like My righteousness. Would you like to be righteous? Would you like to be accounted as innocent? Would you like to be declared innocent? Even though you are guilty, would you like to be declared innocent? Because someone has already been guilty for you. Jesus. It's a a gift he's offering by faith. Jesus paid for our sins. Jesus was perfect. Jesus was righteous for us. And God gives us Christ's righteousness as a gift. Do you want divine life? That means faith and trust in Jesus. That's why God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel. You can have his righteousness. The gospel is he'll give it to you. He'll give you Christ's righteousness. That's what Habakkuk 2.4 means. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Or your translation might say, the righteous will live by faith. If you want to be righteous, how how can the righteous person live by faith? By faith in Jesus. That's how you become righteous. And so when Martin Luther saw that, when he actually saw that, everything flipped for him. And now, it's like his life was filled with light because instead of reading this verse as, you failed, he reads it as, thank God for Jesus who's done this for me. And it's that complete, it's that shift that broke through the logjam in his mind and in the minds of thousands of others, he just happened to be the first who published and, and, and who um, became the, the, the focus of attention. When that truth emerged in a widespread scale, it had always been flowing around, but it had become crushed and dampened down. And, and when it was let loose again, that's when the world changed in the Protestant Reformation. So we go back to this righteousness. It's a standard, it's a yardstick, it's a measurement. God's righteousness is a pretty big measurement. Self righteous, we're all familiar with self-righteous people. Does anyone like self righteous people? Right. Self righteous people, it means that they're they make themselves the yardstick in the standard. That's why self righteous people are so arrogant, because they think they're right, because like they define the standard, you know, a self righteous person. In God's eyes, every other path to that internal peace is self-righteous because it's manufactured. We've made it, or someone else has made it, and we've grabbed on to it, but it's a manufactured standard. God's righteousness is a standard that's, sort of, that's out there. Luther was right, that is a standard that's out there. But the goodness of God, as I said, is not that God's saying, here it is, come get it. You know, like with the dog, we're like, here, here, come get it, jump up and get it. God's not saying, here it is, try really hard, suckers. He's saying, this is my righteousness. Would you Would you like to have it? Jesus has paid it all. Would you like to have his righteousness? Or you can keep your own, but that's not going to work out very well. It's his righteousness that's given as a gift by faith and for faith. But the problem is that we're like, all of us, no matter who we are, we're like these warped vinyl records where that you put it in the needle on the turntable because it's warped, the needle just skips, just keeps skipping and hopping back. My kids don't know about vinyl turntables, but I mean, it's a real thing. You know, the record, the record is all warped and the needle keeps skipping. We keep skipping back to wanting to make salvation about our efforts, and that takes a million different forms, but this idea that we keep skipping back to trying to manufacture a self-righteousness, I gotta do this, I gotta do that, I gotta do this, um, is, ro- is wrong because it's a gift that's being offered. Paul was made to feel ashamed of the gospel by tons of by people who tried to kill him, by people at Mars Hill, by everyone who, to whom he spoke, because it sounds so simple I remember my own my own mother once when I be right after I became a Christian she made fun of Christians she said yeah you can just live the however you want and then when you're about to die you just ask Jesus to come into your heart and you're forgiven and but that's what she thought she thinks it's like a cheap thing Um, and we're we're so anxious to we're so anxious to 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 feel ashamed because it seems so simple it's faith that's a gift that's being offered Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation. It's not the power from within me. It's not the power from my own efforts. It's not the power from anything. Power from God. It's a divine intervention from on high for salvation to everyone who believes, to everyone who has faith. So what's the righteousness of God? The righteousness of God is revealed. It's what haunted Martin Luther. What on earth is it? it's a gift that God is offering in exchange for our faith our loyalty our trust in Jesus it's a it's a gift where he gives us his son's righteousness he gives us legally it's like he transfers Jesus's righteousness and applies it to each one of us and then reconciles us to him heals the relationship forgives us adopts us into his family it's a gift that reconciles that's what he's offering Jesus has made the gift available, and the Father is offering to give it in exchange for our faith. What should you do with this today? This is what you need to do no matter who you are. you have been a Christian for 50 years, you're not a Christian, whatever the case is. Leave here knowing, I mean really, really knowing that righteousness from God is not something held out as a standard that you need to try hard to meet Righteousness from God is a gift that's on offer in exchange for faith, love, trust in Jesus. That's not something you do or manufacture or achieve. It's a gift in exchange for a loyalty pledge to Jesus. The gospel is the power from God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. That's why these two verses are probably one of the most important in the entire Bible And as you leave here today, remember that, know it, and trust in power from God for salvation and never in anything you do or achieve or try really hard to accomplish. It's power from God for salvation. Leave here knowing that, feeling it, and and living it and let that transform your life to love God in a more meaningful and deeper way. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come to you today in Jesus' name. Help us to love you more. Help us to know that salvation is power from God. It's not power from ourselves. And help us to always remember this as we live our lives, as we doubt ourselves, as we fall short, as we stumble, as we sin. Help us always to remember that our security, our salvation, Our our righteousness is never in ourselves. It's always in you and your son and the good news that he offers us. Help us to always trust in you alone for salvation, security, and for our sense of peace and never in ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.